Welcome to Functional Futures, a podcast where developers, compile creators, and PLT specialists talk about the future of functional programming. Uh, we are live uh, with Edwin Brady, um, who is best known for his uh, programming language design. And uh, he co-authored perhaps the most uh, famous esoteric language, second most famous, sorry, uh, BF. Uh, second most famous esoteric language called Whitespace, and perhaps the most famous modern dependently typed language called uh, Idris. Uh, Edwin, thank you so much for talking to yeah, us. Thanks, and, thanks uh, for having me. Perhaps the most, uh, yeah, uh, you're perhaps the most known for your work uh, on Idris. So can you please uh, give us a brief elevator pitch for the language, uh, for whom it is for, and uh, why it's relevant these days? Yeah, OK, so I, I, I'm always we want to be clear that it's it's really a, a research project, so it's not a it, it's not something that I'd expect you to take and use in production. So I'll answer with that in mind. Um, so the the vision I like to say the vision is to bring uh, state of the art software verification techniques into mainstream software development. So obviously I'm not going to claim we're there yet, but the decisions we make, the design choices we make, are all about getting to a point where you've basically got no excuse just to prove the properties you care about of your program because it's it's easier than not doing so um so that's the go it's it's um uh it, and it, that is all based on what i now like to call uh type driven development sort of by analogy with test driven development uh the, the idea being that using the type system you can be uh you can be very precise or as precise as you want about uh, how your program is going to behave and then arrive at a working program by a conversation with uh with the machine so maybe the 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 <laughs> it's always good to have a, a three-word soundbite isn't it or something like that so 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 uh i say programming is a conversation that's uh that's the that's forward soundbite yeah that's that's really cool and uh i mean that it it also can propagate uh, to to other uh, practitioners. I think, even for example, right? Yeah, even for example, work by Costas and and his team from Uppsala on uh, success typing for Erlang. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think actually that's maybe that's an important thing to say early on. Is is just to uh, you know when designing a new language and putting it out there, you you have to decide what it means to be successful. And uh, success for an academic would not be having everybody using the language. In some sense, that would be a nightmare because you've got to support the thing. And it's um, you know, me, me and a couple of colleagues, we're not going to be able to, to support it on our own. Success, on the other hand, is getting the ideas out there and used by other people. So, for example, uh, Haskell picking up full dependent types or, or, or something like Rust. If, so, <laughs> I mean, I occasionally get tagged in issues on, on uh, Rust RFCs. Um, on how do we bring more dependent types in? That to me is success. Is is people knowing the ideas and wanting to take them into uh, more mainstream systems. Um, and I, I I wouldn't say that success typing has been necessarily influenced by dependent types, but it's certainly been influenced by uh, the fact that a lot of people have thought that type checking is a good idea. Yeah. Um, it's and, in in my experience, for example, it's exactly what you're saying is a conversation between me and dialyzer. Right. right. Yeah. 
So Dialyzer might say, hey, this doesn't quite work right yet. And, and your response will be something like, oh, yeah, I better fix that. Or it might be, yeah, but I'll save that for later. And it's that, that it's 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 very easy to think of tools like Dialyzer or Type Checker in general as, as being there to tell you off when you've got it wrong. And that's absolutely not the way we should look at um, programming languages. It, it should be programming languages are there as a tool to help us interface with the machine. In fact, you know, it's in some sense, it's a human computer interaction problem. And it's um, probably be better if we thought of it that way uh, a bit more. But yeah, I mean, it's still all too easy to think of when you get an error message is, you know, teachers telling you off, <laughs> see me after class. And um, I guess with success, success typing, um, the name, as the name implies, it's, it's not so much about being told off. It's just about getting closer to um, something more precise. So I, I think that's what our tools should be doing is, is uh, helping you like we 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 in type driven development we put the type first but that doesn't necessarily mean the type is the final type as we write the program we're going to learn more about the problem uh, we'll refine the type a bit more we'll get a bit of feedback from the type checker and maybe we decide that uh, the type needs to be more precise maybe we decide it needs to be less precise but all of that needs to be done with tool support it, it's not something that where we should just write the whole program and then feed it to the oracle right well, um, yeah. Before I think uh, it's it's good that we uh, present uh, the 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 ideas behind uh, Idris. Mm. But now let's let's try to trace uh, your footsteps along uh -huh. the path of of compiler development, and uh, you know go all the way perhaps to 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 early uh, years uh, uh, in 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 a university or something, and and. Mm -hmm. and I'm just really interested in how did you start developing uh, compilers in the first place? Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it probably goes back further still because um, I'm not sure this will be a shock to everybody, but I have always been a massive geek. You know, I've been, I've been, I've been into computers basically since I was very young. So my my parents bought a BBC Micro when I was about five years old. So I don't actually remember not mucking about with computers. And early on, I was you know, learning BBC Basic um, and um, you know, interacting with the machine and always thinking, oh, I wonder if there's other ways of interacting with the computer. And I've always had this, this fascination with other possible programming languages. So I've, I've always had that kind of strange interest in, in, um, in languages, in, in programming languages. So eventually, uh, I went to university to do computer science, which in hindsight was the only thing I was ever going to do at university. And when it came to picking my um, honors project, um, there was uh, there was one, the headline was a compiler to teach compiling. And the idea of it was just write a small language, but have visualization tools for uh, like the parse tree and lexical analysis and the runtime system so that you could trace um, how the source language ended up at a target language. And I loved doing that. I, I, had, I had enormous fun doing that. So that, that was probably the, the first compiler I wrote. It wasn't a tremendously useful language. So that I think the most complicated type it had was strings. Um, but it, it, it was how I learned about um, parsers, runtimes, and um, compilers at all. Um, so what happened next? Yeah, I got a I got a proper job for a bit after that, working on a 
uh, a natural language processing system at a spin-off company from Durham University. And even there, I was working on domain-specific languages. So I was working on um, uh, an inference system for... Um, so there's facts in the knowledge in a knowledge database and questions being asked. And so they were being encoded and we were inferring answers to questions and all of that. It's in the end, it was a programming language problem on, on the face of it. It didn't look like one, but it was a programming language problem because it was make the runtime fast, uh, have a parser that allows not uh, domain experts to, to, to state facts that they can add to the, um, uh, to the database. And after a couple of years of that, um, I decided it would be fun to go back to university and learn a bit about type theory. Um, that's where I learned about epigram. So that was uh, James McKinnon and Connor McBride. So they were my, well, James McKinnon was my supervisor. Uh, I did quite a bit of work with Connor McBride. They were, they were designing a new language epigram. And my thinking then was, you know, this is all very cool, but you know the, what we can express here is very cool, but it would be nice if we could run these programs. <laughs> how do we how do we how do we make this useful to a developer? And so uh, my PhD ended up being how do you compile dependent types? Um, and it turned out there were there were some uh, some problems with just just erasing types. Like just erasing types on its own doesn't really work because you end up with a lot of stuff at runtime that's not actually a type but it's still only con compile time information so it's like how do we how do we erase that so everything every uh, everything i've done in all of, all of my language uh, implementation work i think it's really been starting from that point of these ideas are very cool how do we run them how do we eventually get them to uh, end users where the end user is a mainstream software developer or a practitioner um yeah, that's about it, really. That's it. Right. And and somewhere along the way, uh, you you uh, did some work on esoteric languages. Uh, you yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't. Part. I wouldn't go as far as calling that work. I mean, that literally was one evening after the pub. It was. Um, <laughs> it took a couple of us just went out for a beer on a Saturday night, and because <laughs> might have mentioned, I've always been a massive geek. Uh, we were talking about programming languages as you do and thinking oh well you, you don't really you don't really need many characters to encode a programming language you, um and it, it's not not just you don't need it to you don't need many characters characters to encode encode it on disk for example or encode it in memory you can actually give some semantics to those characters and let's see what happens if we just stick with the white space characters and so i went home and um because i, I I'd been doing quite a bit of work at that point on runtime systems, so so I knew how to you know make a stack machine, for example. Um, uh, so I'd had one, I had one that I'd been working on for uh, the target of epigram. So I kind of knew how they worked. And um, Haskell is a great language for for making prototypes of this sort of thing. You can do it very quickly without having to worry about uh, memory management, for example. And um, and it just kind of worked. And we noticed that it was March the thirtieth. So we thought, ah, this was, you know, before everyone got bored of April Fool's jokes. Oh, maybe it wasn't. Um, and we thought, okay, let's let's just post this on the internet on April the first and see what happens. <laughs> and that that is the thing that that is still, I'm sure, that has the most impact of anything I've ever done, probably ever will. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I mean, it's 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 just a thing that that if you happen to be working in programming languages 
and you think, hey, wouldn't this be funny? And you have this kind of sense of humor. It's 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 uh, it's a quick thing to bash out. Uh, so so we did. Um, right. That's 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 a cool story. Uh, <laughs> well, the... I mean, every so often it, it comes up um, for it, um, out of the blue. So one day, and um, maybe maybe the person who did this is watching. Uh, um, so in about two thousand and eight, I got um, in the post at work. I got a, a printout of I don't know. It was just a load of blank sheets of paper. It was like scrap paper. And there was a letter attached saying, um, there's a problem with my white space code. Uh, I can't figure it out. I don't want to email it to you because I don't want it to be intercepted by anyone. Um, I wonder if you could help. And my plan had always been to highlight around a bit of it, post it back and say, here's your problem. But I lost it. And I was never able to send it back. So if it was you who sent me your code, I'm sorry I wasn't able to help you. If, If anyone out there... Um, I, I thought that was really funny, and I'm I'm very sad that I don't know who it was or where the code went. Because um, I mean, I guess if I ever fa- find it, I can post it back and say, "Sorry, it took me 15 years to debug your code. It was just a bit tricky to type it all in." Um, anyway, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So, um, all right. Um, well, you so so basically the the white space thing and the. Idris thing, as it turns out, uh, are intimately related. Uh, with, In a sense, uh, yes. <laughs> interesting. Uh, but, um, yeah, well, what what interests me a lot about this process of making uh, basically research languages, yeah, mm. um, especially uh, Idris, uh, is, uh, well, students around, uh, around the world are, are, are said... To read the, the Dragon Book, yeah, and then they mm-hmm. will be able to to write compilers. Mm. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that's true anymore, but <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I myself found that it's already a little bit uh, of sketchy of ad- an advice. I mean, of course, people should still read the the, the classics, yes, yeah. but uh, um, yeah, I would I would really like you to to talk a little bit about what is actually kind of the difference and where where do you go from reading the Dragon Book. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, these days I wouldn't necessarily recommend starting with the Dragon Book. It's, it's. Um, uh, I would say I haven't, I haven't read the latest edition, so, so um, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't want to say things that are unfair. There's a lot of that in the in the edition I read. So the second edition that I was reading um, when I was doing my um, compiler to teach compiling project, and I learned, I learned a lot of good stuff from it. Um, but it was based on. How people wrote parsers and lexers at the time. These days, I think you need to know. You certainly need to know the fundamentals of. You need to know how to write a parser, but the way you write a parser these days is probably with a parser combinator library. Um, like you kind of need to know how to refactor your grammar into such a way that <clears throat> that um, it's not hopelessly inefficient. Um, but you don't really need to know all of the details that the Dragon Book goes into. Similarly, you don't really need to know <clears throat> a huge amount about code generation, unless that happens to be the thing you're interested in. Um, I, I, I've never really written a code generator, for example. Um, not in the not in the sense of spitting out assembly code. I've written a code generator in the sense of writing out C or Scheme or a target language. Um, so 
Definitely know the basics. Definitely have something like the Dragon Book to hand so that if you're not sure how to do something, you can probably find it in there. But if if you are interested in in working on a new language, I think the, probably the most important thing is to know about other languages. Like know, know how other people have tackled the problem of uh, getting explaining things to a computer. Know the trade-offs. So that might involve you know dabbling in functional languages, object-oriented languages, knowing a bit about these days, knowing a bit about linear type systems. So knowing a bit about Rust, uh, knowing a bit about Prolog and Lisp. So just just knowing the history of where things have come from. Like you don't have to write big, sophisticated programs in all of these languages, but you do need to know what features exist because um, I think if you do want to design a new language, which, I mean, why not? It's fun. Um, it's it's good to have something different about it. So don't, don't just come up with a new syntax for an existing language because you think a different syntax would be would be nice. So try to try to take inspiration from lots of different languages that you've you've tried out and see if you can put them together in a new and exciting way. I mean isn't that what kind of what programming language research is about uh, to, to some extent is um, putting old features together in new ways and seeing how well they work. Um, yeah, so th I would say don't get too hung up on understanding everything in the Dragon Book. Have it, have it to hand, so that um, I say have it to hand. It's not actually here; it's in, it's in, it's in my office at the, the department. Um, yeah, have it to hand, so you know how other people have solved um, long-standing problems. But better to better to know about um, uh, how other languages work. Oh, and also, um, it's. I think well worth knowing a little bit of type theory, just a little bit of basics of lambda calculus and type theory. Um, again, because that's a way that people have solved problems for a long time. It's good to know how people have solved problems in the past. I think it's a lot easier to learn about type theory than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Now there are, there are more things that you can read. Uh, and of course there are, there are languages like Idris and Agda that you can use to, to, to learn those concepts. So, um, yeah, learn learn a bit of theory. Make sure you know a few languages. Lock things up in the Dragon Book where you need to. Right. These are great advices. And um, you mentioned code generation. Mm, and yes. um, uh, what what is a very popular um, advice for beginners or for people who already wrote uh, something, some language, some toy language, but who maybe want to to make uh, their first like real language is mm -hmm. uh, to t to learn about LLVM these days yeah. and uh, um, to use it as a target for their first like mm. real language. Uh, so can you please tell our viewers uh, about your opinion about LLVM, what it is, and uh, of course if uh, uh, if it existed in the shape that it exists now, because obviously well. LLVM has a long history, right? Yeah. Uh, and it was, wasn't always this kind of universal target for everyone. Would you have uh, used it for uh, as a target for Idris uh, back, yeah. to, back when? Yeah. The, the, the question about LLVM comes up um, quite often. It's like, you know, sh shouldn't, shouldn't we use LLVM as a target language? And um, I've, I've tried it out a bit. I've, I've, um, I've had students try it out, which is... Um, 
<laughs> much easier thing to do than trying it out myself. Um, and I, I still don't think it's the right choice for something like Idris. Um, it might be the right choice for a lot of things, but I don't think it's the right choice for me. And the, 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 the reason I don't think it's the right choice is, is mostly because it doesn't stop you having to write a runtime system. Um, so it saves you a lot of the difficulty of knowing knowing your target architecture. I think that's a that's a big thing. Um, but you still have to think about how data is going to be represented, and you think you have to think about uh, garbage collection, uh, calling conventions, and maybe it comes down to what you're interested in. There was a time when I fancied myself as a as a runtime system author and I thought it would be I thought it would be cool to work on it. And and I think maybe if LLVM had been in the state it is now, um, ten years ago, then I would have spent some time um, learning more about it and, and and getting it to work uh, as an interest backend. And I think if you if that's if that's something that's if when making a programming language, your interest is in getting the best performance out and having a lot of control over the code that's being generated, if that's your main interest, then definitely use LLVM. But my main interest with the latest version of Idris is not so much that as, as getting a mature, having a mature runtime system that already works really well so that all I have to think about is um, the language design itself. Uh, the type system, getting and getting the, the high-level language contracts, constructs and libraries set up in such a way that people can use them nicely. And for that, um, Scheme is absolutely, it, it was a, a surprisingly good choice. It's It was something I always intended to be just a, a quick hack, and then we'd move on, maybe we'd move on to LLVM. But it's become increasingly obvious to me that I'm not going to do any better and it, than, than using Scheme as the target. So this is quite surprising because you know Scheme is um, it's a dynamically typed language. So your first thought would be, hang on, aren't there a lot of runtime checks that that we've we've got we've we've had a type checker work out that these runtime checks are unnecessary? Why do we have to do the runtime checks? And the answer to that is quite simple. You pick a version of Scheme where you can turn those off. Um, so Shay Scheme, you can turn them off. Um, and <laughs> By the way, um, even if you don't turn them off, still generates code that's faster than what we were getting out of uh, earlier versions of Idris. So um, that was the point where I thought, yeah, I'm not a runtime system author. Let's uh, let's let's use one that's already really good. So it's got a really good garbage collector. It's got a good story about tail calls and continuations. Um, that's all stuff that we can just use. So my advice to anyone who's interested in um, playing around with a toy. Uh, language, especially if it has some kind of functional flavor, like it has it got if it's got closures, and especially if it's got a bit of garbage collection, is um, seriously consider using some flavor of scheme as your target, um, because even when you're in the toy experimental stage, you will have a fast runtime. So um, and yet yeah, maybe you'd be able to do something better and faster with LLVM. Eventually, it's probably worth the effort. But uh, you'll get the most um, the most performance for least effort if, if you pick a, a target like Scheme. So yeah, don't don't rule out um, things like Scheme just for minor little details like they're dynamically typed. Um, turns out it doesn't have the overhead that you might suspect, especially when you can turn it off. Right, that's uh, that's really cool. Um, very very. Uh, nice insight into basically picking your battles, right? Well, that's the point, actually. Yeah, exactly. Pick your battles. 
your your right. battle very much might be I'm fascinated by runtime systems, in which case don't use someone else's, write your own. But right. um, that's not that's not what I'm interested in. So actually, what you what you're just what you're describing is somewhat uh, similar to the um, uh, to the insight of uh, pure script uh, people, because what okay. they're doing is they're saying, okay, we're developing this language that and that we can't run actually, right? And then and then it's up to you know up to someone else to figure out how to how to basically write uh, a run function you know for our main uh, right. format or whatever yeah. right that's it's uh, and it's it's beautiful because um, of course initially it was designed to compile to javascript mm -hmm. but these days we have so many backends for your script and mm -hmm. uh, for me it's very fascinating that they managed to to have an actual working uh, erlang backend as well, right? And, oh, I didn't know uh, about that. Yeah, 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 I knew I knew that they had a, a variety, but I, I didn't know they gone to Erlang as well. Yeah, there's actually a, a company here in the UK that uh, does uh, that uses it in production that okay, the Erlang cool. backend, which is really cool. Yeah, they're doing video streaming and whatnot. Mm. Very nice. Uh, yeah, and in, in a way, this is this all it was enabled by uh, by the fact that uh, uh, it's agnostic to a yeah. Degree. That was a deliberate choice with the latest Idris as well. So. It, um, it was it was an accident to have multiple backends for the, the the first Idris. It was just someone thought, oh, I wonder if I could write a JavaScript backend, and it worked. And then for Idris too, I thought, okay, um, that was obviously useful. So let's just have an API that people can use. Let's let's have um kind of a smallish syntax tree that you can write your own target for. So so there's an Idris to Erlang uh, compiler now that I believe is um, good enough that it can compile itself, which is always a that's that. That's kind of the definition of of when your when your code generated for Idris is complete these days. Is it good enough to compile itself? Um, uh, yeah. So, so being being agnostic about your target language is uh, it, it's you have to make some compromises, but it's um, I think it's a nice thing to do these days. Like multi platform, there's lots of platforms, and platforms aren't. Linux, Mac, PC anymore. Platforms are, you know, it's for the web, it's for .NET, it's for JVM, it's for <laughs> PHP or whatever. Um, so I, I think that's uh, that's a good thing to be able to do. Especially like Erlang, if you're doing distributed systems, then Erlang is a fantastic choice. So, so if you want to do distributed systems with um, pure functional programming and fancy type systems, then let's take the best of both worlds if we can. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And uh, we, which system isn't distributed anymore, am I right? Uh, that's a fair point, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so um, yeah, so let's let's kind of get back to, from, from compilers in general to Idris uh, mm. and uh, talk a little bit more in details about it, um, but still while being somewhat beginner slash intermediate friendly. Uh, so um, I know for myself, when I have to explain to someone uh, what is Idris? I kind of wave my hands around and I say, well, you know, Haskell, you know, Agda and Koch, and it's like kind of somewhere in between. Um, okay. Right. So uh, how would you say what, 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 if you would have to compare Idris to uh, like practical typed languages like uh, Haskell and to proof assistance, like wh where would you put it? So, I mean, firstly, I love that we're in a world where you can say practical type languages like Haskell. That's fantastic that we've, <laughs> we've got to that point. Um, uh, so 
Thinking back to just the beginning of working on Idris, I, I think it, 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 there's a question of would I still start a project like Idris now when Haskell exists? And I think the answer is probably yes, uh, because Haskell is, it's got to this point where uh, you add more and more language extensions. So you've got Haskell 98 that essentially nobody uses. It's not completely true. There are people who stick to Haskell 98, but uh, most people will will stick to a, a small um, collection or maybe a large collection of favored extensions. But it's, it's, the point is there are extensions. You never quite know which Haskell you're at. Uh, you never quite know what's coming next. And there's all this wonderful new power that's coming into Haskell, and you see people do fantastic things with it. But at some point, um, I would want to consolidate all of that. How do you how do you how do you take all of these wonderful features and make them simple? Now I don't like to use the word simple, but I'm going to use the word simple here in the sense of uh, small. Make the language uh, as small and orthogonal as possible. Um, so that's why I think Idris is partly by accident, um, but partly because uh, all of the things that you might want to express using hundreds of Haskell extensions, you could do instead by writing a type level program that is just the same language as as your your ordinary term level language. So um, so I I think I, I, I'm gonna assert that Idris is significantly simpler than Haskell because the type system um, allows you to write programs in this. I don't say type level programs, I just say programs because you know, they're the same thing, aren't they? Um, so yeah, if 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 one were to start again on a language like Haskell, knowing what we know now, I, I would sort of imagine that it would be. I, I would hope it would be something like Idris, but lazy. Um, maybe maybe that's uh, that's that's where that's where we'd want Haskell to be. So the um, another th just sort of minor differences are, are, are things like prioritizing interactive editing. Um, so Haskell's picked up a bit of that lately with um, sort of. Um, interactive tooling and particularly with typed holes but one of the things that makes type systems hard especially expressive type systems like haskell's and like full dependent types is that um, getting the whole program right is challenging and you get error messages that so you know, your, your program doesn't make sense um but it's up to you to figure out why because i you know can't, can't give you the full details. Um, so interactive editing is is essential, really. Once once you have um, more sophisticated programs to work with and I, I, to work on, and I think um, uh, really thinking about not only what complete programs look like, but what partially written programs look like is is, is crucial. So that's another thing that I think Idris takes a lot more seriously than uh, GAC Haskell does. But GAC Haskell and various tooling support is is taking that more seriously now. So that, that's how I compare it with Haskell. On the other side, comparing with Agda and Koch. So again, thinking back to when uh, I was starting to work on Idris, Agda was around, but Agda 2 was in its infancy. Uh, there had been an earlier version of Agda that um, differences in its type system. So, um, and I had all the components, so I thought, you know, I might as well not be tied to other people's design choices. I'm, I might as well just have a go at, uh, have a go at my own. And at that point, I was coming at it more from the direction of um, how will these, what kind of programs will we run? What kind of programs will will mainstream software developers want to run? So I kind of started from the back end and worked towards the front end. I mean, that's what I'd done for my PhD work anyway. So I'd like um, 
type erasure so that you could compile dependently typed programs, at least moderately efficiently. Um, whereas Agda, I think, was more starting from the other direction of, of um, what kind of things can we express in the type system? What kind of what kind of interesting things can we prove? I think we've got to a point now where uh, we've kind of met in the middle. So, um, and uh, and now I think it's great that both Agda and Idris exist because every time one gets a feature, the other one has to catch up. So that sort of competition, I think, is really healthy. Um, so you know, I, I go along to Agda meetings. They come along to Idris meetings. We learn, we learn what we each learn what the other one's done. So like the last Agda meeting, um, I, I shared some tricks for how I'd made Idris two a lot faster than Idris one, um, because I want Agda to to be as fast as Idris two, so that I have to kind of rush ahead again. Um, but I think it, 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 the, the 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 contrast is really about where the where the initial focus of the language was, and I think. Um, I think Agda has always been more about proving interesting things, and Idris has always been more about how can we how can we make it easier for mainstream software development to be able to prove more things. Like if I if I can explain something to another programmer about why my program works, I should also be able to explain it to the compiler so that the compiler can keep me right on it. Um, and that's kind of what we aim to do. Uh, the, the contrast with Cock is, I think, it's quite a bit more, quite a bit um, bigger. Um, so, so the um, Cock really is primarily a theorem prover. You can extract programs from it. Um, people do. It's um, people do in a fairly big, significant way. Uh, but I don't really think of it as a dependently typed programming language. It is based on dependent type theory underneath. That's the way you do your proofs. Um, but what people will typically do is write down a specification and then derive a working program from that specification rather than um, add some indices to types and then write programs over those more expressive types. Um, so it's, it's, it's really it's taking a very different it's, it's encouraging a very different approach to writing programs than uh, than Idris and Agda do. Um, so yeah, all, all of these systems sit in a sort of different point in the design space, I suppose. Haskell is sitting in a point where we've had pure functional programming for a long time. Let's make the type system a bit better. Idris is maybe what would we do if we were to start again? And let's say we like the Haskell syntax, but but we want to make the type system. We want to consolidate all of the fancy type system features. Uh, Agda is similar, but with a focus on proving. And then Cock is really. I don't want to say just a theorem prover because it is a lot more than a theorem prover. People write very big, sophisticated software packages in it, but it's definitely more of a focus on theorem proving. Maybe there's a spectrum of Haskell, Idris, Agda, Koch, a spectrum of where you are on the programming side, where you are on the proving side. That's oversimplifying, but. I guess, what I is guess a YouTube stream for if not oversimplifying? No. True, true. Our, our, our whole channel. Yeah. Well, actually, it's it's not fair to, to some of our speakers <laughs> who, are, who are talking about uh, in details about what they're working on the GHC right now. Uh, yeah. Which, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, actually, actually, uh, you you talking about uh, Coq, uh, For me, it's uh, I, I see some parallels to later, right? Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's a programming language, which is primarily a markup language, but it is a programming language. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so here's yeah. a kind of similar thing, right? It's it's a theorem prover that's also a programming. It just language. happens to be a programming language as well. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So um, 
So you, you've mentioned already, and uh, you were very upfront uh, about it in your elevator pitch, that uh, Idris is a research language. But mm. when we talk about research languages, we we really talk about two things at the same time, in, 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 my, in my opinion, at least, right? One is a research language being a vessel uh, for research, right? When, when the language itself is the object of the research. And another, another thing is when a, like a research language is a platform for research. Would it be fair to say that Idris is both at the same time, that Idris itself is the object of research, but it also enables uh, PLC research yeah. or dependently type research? We certainly do both. I mean, uh, part of the reason for Idris existing in the first place was I wanted to have, I just wanted to have a dependently typed language that I could write programs in. Um, and then I thought, okay, once that's finished, then I'll just move on and write the programs. But of course, it's not going to work out like that, is it? Because you suddenly think of, of other things you might want your language to do. Um, so, there's, so there's definitely those two sides of um, how, do you make, how do you make the language better and then what kind of interesting things can you do in the language? And I think we do both. Um, so um, there's, I think at the minute, I suppose to focus on would be uh, metaprogramming. So how do we how do we make the language nicely extensible? How, how do we add the reflection features that make um, theorem proving easier? Because, you know, like it or not, it's not, not really a theorem prover primarily. But if you add sophisticated types, you're probably going to have proof obligations arise naturally that you just need to deal with. So how do we make it easier to do that? That's certainly a language design question. Uh, then there was the question of um, uh, dealing with um, protocols and, and states and the fact that um, we're okay to pure language, but but the reality is the world, the the outside world has things that exist in certain states. How do we represent that sort of thing? Um, so linearity, linear types come in, and so how do we bring that into the language and make them usable? So um, yeah, all these questions just arise naturally once you start writing programs, which is fine. That's um, that's 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 one um, one kind of research that we're going to do with Idris. Um, so actually, those two kinds of research, the, the, what's, uh, uh, how do you develop the language and what can you do with the language, they really feed off each other. Because um, as soon as you try to do something, you find you, you find you might need another feature. And then you have to ask, well, should I add the feature? Can I do this in a library? Uh, what's the best way to approach this? So yeah, I think people do both. Right. Right, And it's, it's certainly a fascinating feedback loop. Uh, you have mentioned. Uh, linearity, as far as I understand, this is one of the uh, standing out features of Idris two compared to Idris one. Yeah, I, it's it's the linearity part is is still experimental, but um, so and, and people are using it in practice. But um, the uh, th this is all part of um, quantities. So quantitative type theory is is the the core language that Idris is based on. Um, so fancy sounding name, but all it really means is every variable has a quantity attached to it. Um, uh, QTT itself is kind of agnostic in what the quantities can be, but just for the sake of simplicity, <laughs> not adding too much in one go. Uh, in Idris 2, they can either be 0, 1, or unrestricted. So 0 means never used at runtime. 1 means used exactly once at runtime. And then unrestricted is the world we used to be in, where everything had no restrictions. So Linearity is interesting and we can play with, there's all sorts of fun we can have with it. Um, but by far the most useful is this zero quantity because um, thinking back to where I came in working with dependent types, it was all about 
there's a lot of stuff in the type that's going to leak into runtime if we're not careful. Um, tried all sorts of um, techniques for um, getting rid of that. Um, so, so I came up with the idea of, of noticing which arguments could be uniquely determined by which other arguments and then just erasing them. And then I had a student who, who had a whole program inference mechanism that, um, that could tell you what was never going to be used and erase it. Uh, but quantities make the whole thing much simpler because the type checker will tell you if something is uh, is needed at runtime or not. If, if, you, if you say something is compile time only, the type checker tells you if you violate that. And uh, that has proved to be, I think, extremely useful because it, it, if you're not very careful, you can have things leaking into your program that you really didn't intend. And it's like, not only does the program become slower, uh, the complexity becomes worse. So QTT really stops that being a problem with the zero quantity. And you know, once you've got zero and unrestricted, you might as well see what you can do with other quantities. So um, it, it's fun to see what we can encode with linearity. Um, it's kind of ugly to encode anything at all interesting uh, at the moment, but um, I guess that's one of the language design things we're gonna be working on is how do you make that less ugly? Um, and it's probably going to involve some work on the type system, like the, the, the core type system to make it nicer to work with. But I think that, that's certainly going to be a line of research over the next, uh, the next little while. And for most users, like, um, you won't really notice that, uh, that Idris 2 is based on QTT and Idris 1 isn't, uh, except in places where you have written programs with accidental, things accidentally leaking into the runtime. Uh, in which case, um, Idris 2 has probably just been very helpful to you. <laughs> it's just told you that a, a compile time thing is actually runtime, and you might want to think about whether that was necessary or not. Um, I've forgotten what your question was. I just started rambling. I do that. Sorry. Right. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I was, I was, uh, I was asking about how 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 essential is QTT for. Uh... For Idris two, oh, uh, right, what, yeah, okay. what are yeah. some 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 other some other uh, differences between one and two, and and how how in general uh, you you pick uh, version numbers? Because I mentioned pure script already, <laughs> yeah. right? They're they're very um, the original language creator already said, okay, it's it's good enough. I'm living. You mm -hmm. guys figure it out, and girls, and uh, and they're still they're still major version zero. Even though it's right. um, very yeah. usable, right? Uh, so, how do you pick uh, your version it's, numbers, and what's the big dif uh, Some other big difference between it's one a, and two? It's, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't really know the answer to that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'll say why I call it Idris two rather than just changing the version number. It, it's a completely new implementation, so um, it's not a completely new language, um, but it's a completely new implementation. Um, when we, so we're, we're currently confusing some people by calling it Idris 2 version 0.5.1. That was because I, you know, I needed, a, you know, you need a between, between one and two, but that also says this isn't, this isn't the final thing yet. So eventually we'll get to Idris 2.0 and that will be the version number. Um, I would say that you shouldn't use Idris 1 anymore. I, Idris 2, even though, even though we're calling it Idris 2 version 0.5.1, um, it's still significantly more robust than Idris One. Um, like it's a, at least an order of magnitude faster. Um, it's certainly more robust because uh, it's implemented in Idris, so we've been able to take advantage of the things that we've been advocating to, um, so that the 
the fundamental problems we had in the Idris One implementation just can't happen because the, the type system makes them not happen. Now, obviously, we still have issues that we need to deal with. It's not uh, you know, there's there's no there's no way of saying, oh, I'm using fancy types, therefore my program has no bugs. The world doesn't work like that, unfortunately. But the bugs we do have generally kind of superficial. It's not um, uh, the, the, we don't really have we don't really get difficult bugs in the core type system implementation because. You know, I, I put quite a bit of time into setting things up so that that couldn't happen. So yeah, Idris 2 is a lot more robust. The fact that it's implemented in Idris itself means that we have a huge incentive to make it go quickly enough and be responsive enough. Um, what are the other differences? So QTT is is going to be the main difference. We did um, make some. We've got some different decisions about what goes in libraries. So so in Idris one, we we basically threw everything into the prelude, so that the kind of standard thing that's loaded when you start up Idris, um, and it was it was full of all sorts of stuff. I have no idea how it got in there. Like there was a factorial function in the prelude. Why would you have a factorial function in the prelude? I don't know. I think there might even have been a, a Fibonacci function in the prelude. I have no idea how that got there. Um, so Idris two has had quite a bit more thought put into that sort of question. So the so the the prelude is is in a sense a part of the language in that it's um it's just the things that the rule of thumb is I believe that a non-trivial program, all non-trivial programs will need it, then it goes in the prelude. Now that's that's not very formal, but it's it's um it, it, it gives some kind of way of deciding. So so if you're moving from Idris one to Idris two, you might have to import more libraries. Um so you might run into problems with quantities which are usually easily fixable. You might have um you might have to import some libraries, but otherwise it's basically the same language. Um, cool, 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 cool. Um, yeah, I mean, with, with stuff that goes into Prelude, uh, there's this phrase, you know it when you see it. Uh, yeah, and I, like, I, I, I can't give anyone a useful definition. Yeah. Um, and if, if someone adds something, and, I, and if someone, people very rarely add something to the Prelude, because I think, it's very hard. It, you, you, the the burden of proof is on the person who wants to add it, I suppose. Now, but if there's something that's borderline, I'd probably err on the side of yeah, okay, let's take it. I guess it depends. But um, yeah, so we've, we've we've been a bit more careful with that. I mean, part of anything else, having a load of stuff in the prelude means you have to load a load of stuff <laughs> into memory. We yeah. we already we already have to think quite carefully about how much memory we're using because. Just because of the, the nature of a dependently typed language, is you have to be able to evaluate programs at compile time. So you have to you have to be able to access them somehow. Um, so there are there are tricks we can do to not have to have them in memory all the time. But um, if the prelude's bigger, we have to work a bit harder. That makes things slower. Um, it's not a great reason for having a smaller prelude, but it's one of the reasons for having a smaller prelude. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's uh, talk about the the dreadful thing of adoption of a language. Uh, hmm. You mentioned that uh, you aren't too happy when people pick up your work. No, no, I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> I, I I'm always very happy that people are using Idris. Uh, I think it would be we'd have challenges that we currently don't know we wouldn't know how to address if if you know if millions of people are using Idris, then we can't support that. I mean, on the other hand, if millions of people are using Idris, I suppose some of them are going to be feeding back into um, supporting oh, yeah. it. So um, that that is the nice thing about building a, a community is that uh, the community will help. So, like at the minute, I'm 
um, I spending most of my time dealing with teaching related things. So I have essentially no time to work on Idris, but having built a bit of a community, it's not such a big deal because there's a few committers. So I suppose if we, if we did grow, um, I'd be able to take more of a step back. So it's not, not a complete, uh, not a completely bad thing. Right. And I, I don't want to discourage people from taking up Idris just because I don't have the time because yeah. other people, other people will be able to help. Uh, but I think it's, it's just not a primary thing. If you, if, uh, this is probably a general rule. If you create a programming language with the intention of people using it, it's not going to happen. Um, now, if you happen to be a big company where you can say to your employees, you're going to use this language, that's a bit different. But no individual is ever going to be able to do that. Right. So uh, so our goal just has to be to get the ideas out there and, and to allow people to have fun playing with it. And then maybe the odd one... I know a few people are using Idris commercially because they've had some fun with it as a hobby thing. And like commercial uses tend to be sort of little tools on the side. That no, no, nobody's out there betting their business on Idris, to my knowledge. I hope they're not anyway. Um, um, but there are people using it for tools uh, to support their other work. Or, or to, uh, I think I've, I've seen things like uh, using Idris to write a kind of uh, baseline proved correct version and then writing another version alongside and you can do fuzzing to see if they behave the same way that kind of thing so so people are using idris in that kind of lightweight way which is nice to see all right so um, um yeah well uh, on on github for example uh we see that there is uh, some activity and some pretty popular repositories uh as far as Idris is concerned and the most popular one is uh, something that uh, basically mimics conduit library in idris mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a for stream processing, and uh, my question to you is, like, have you have you used this particular library, and have you looked at what people do with Idris and tried to kind of play with it? Yeah, I, I keep an eye on on what libraries people are writing. So we have a wiki page that lists. Like, I don't think that I don't think that um, streaming library is on our wiki library wiki page. Come and think of it. Not sure. Uh, so I haven't used it. It's not it's not generally the kind of program I write, uh, but I know a lot of people do. So. Um, be interesting to see what people are doing with that library as well, I suppose. Um, yeah, so there there is a growing library ecosystem. There's um, what one of the challenges always is is where are the libraries? What libraries do I use? Um, it's it's one thing that could easily put people off using a language if there's if there's not enough libraries and you don't know where to find them. So it's nice that they are being developed. Um, so the, the things you'd expect like parsing libraries for JSON, XML. Um, I had an, um, an intern over the summer do um, a graphics library. That's quite nice to see. So um, you've seen the gloss library in Haskell. So it's um, a thing that allows you to describe pictures and then write pure functions to, to manipulate pictures. So, so I thought it'd be quite a fun thing for teaching. So we've got uh, so a bit of basic support for graphics and end cursors and you know, user interfaces. Um, if we've got a JavaScript backend, so people have written libraries there to, to help to work with that. Oh, there's an Idris port of DAL, so the configuration language. Um, so there's there's a few things slowly appearing. What we don't yet have is is a definitive package repository and package manager. People are working on it. So um, I think I think a lot of people um, swear by Nix for that sort of thing. Um, I'm not familiar with Nix myself, but. Um, so yeah, there's there's plenty of activity, which is lovely to see. Most mostly hobbyists, but that's fine. Yeah, and regarding Nix, uh, of course, it's uh, 
I, I like to say that it's a correct choice. Um, it's it's not necessarily correct for from the standpoint of budgeting um, for companies, or at least not for every company. But it's correct in the sense that you know how Phil Wadler tends to say that there are things that are uh, discovered <laughs> and that there are things that are invented, and Nix has basically discovered because yeah. the, the, it's 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 a, a in my opinion, a correct formalization of what does it mean of, of the meaning of a piece of software. Like it, it, it basically formalizes what is a, a unit of software. And then from, from there, it, it kind of builds the, the, the system to, to, to put these units together into, into meaningful uh, artifacts. Yeah. And this is, uh, yeah, if, for, for I think that for Idris there is nothing uh, better than than using Mix as the. I mean that, that that could make some sense, but we still need some place where people go to some web page that says if you want library X, you type this command and behold, there is the library. Right. Um, so so w whatever thing we're using under the hood, we need that on the surface, which we don't currently have. Right. Um, I'm sure it'll appear eventually. It's. Um, I mean, it's it's not really something I can devote my own time to but if someone does it i can certainly put it on the web page and say this is what you mm -hmm. use thanks to these thanks to these wonderful helpers what and what about um kind of blessing uh, certain libraries in the same way because in my in my experience uh one of the problems with um, with haskell for example is that not that its ecosystem doesn't have the libraries it's just because there are five libraries that do the same thing with yes, completely yes. different right. opinions about how it should be done. And then you kind of get your attention as an adopter gets scattered between this different, basically, preferences yeah. of authors of the libraries. So what's, what's your opinion about like blessing libraries? Yeah, I mean, that'd be, because that, that's the, the, the Python approach, isn't it? You, you come batteries included, you have a load of libraries that are part of the, kind of part of the distribution. And I would prefer to go that way, I, but we're not really at a point yet where we've got competing libraries that, um, <laughs> where you know, the, the competing libraries have to exist first before you decide on that. Now, I think we, we would say, what I would probably say is hope, hopefully everybody would be actively involved in the interest community and talking to each other. And hopefully we'd get everyone to eventually collaborate on the um on sort of i kind of hope it would naturally lead to um one version winning out but we haven't reached a point yet where that's been a problem we have um i'm hoping we will reach a point where we have that problem uh, in which case yeah i would i would prefer to have one blessed version choice is terrible sometimes isn't it so, oh yeah yeah for sure uh, <laughs> and uh and oh and uh you have the luxury of not having uh, a committee right because uh <laughs> when yeah, yeah it, it can be paralyzing at times yeah because for example even with small things like um uh, you know default uh instance for uh json encoding for uh for a byte string yeah yeah so it's, it's it's theoretically impossible to to pick one yeah so yeah since it's opinionated, it's not there. And, and then it's a huge, in my experience, even this like tiny thing is a huge thing that I have to explain to people who are working on my code and want to like encode a byte string as, as JSON, you know? Yeah, that's the, that's the decision I made. There were other decisions I could have made, but I didn't. That's just yeah. the way it goes, uh, unfortunately. Um, yeah. 
Right. So let's let's round uh, round up the interview part and move move uh, to questions. So what are your plans for the future of Idris? And um, uh, do you want, aside from meta programming, do you work on some new and exciting research? Um, well, I'm, I'm probably start with meta programming because maybe that is the new and exciting research. Um, so the the primary goal for Idris right now, because I don't have an awful lot of time to work on it at the moment, is performance. So it's I think it's it's absolutely crucial for a system like this to be responsive. Um, now, we can't always be responsive because the, the nature of a dependently typed language is that there are type level programs. And if you write a slow type level program, I can't help you. I, you know, I, I can't magically make your program fast. But on the assumption that, that your, pro, your run the type level program is fast enough, we need to be able to, to respond as quickly as possible. So yeah, primary focus is, is performance. So one way I'm thinking about that at the moment is just the taking advantage of the fact that Idris has implemented its scheme we could use the scheme evaluator to do compile time evaluation of expressions. And um, that has, in my current experiments, it's it's made the evaluator about 20 times faster, something like that. It's between 10 and 20, depending on what I feed it. Um, so that's crucial for metaprogramming. Metaprogramming has to, we're running programs at compile time, so, so they better be quick. Um, now, one, um, one project that... Um, some colleagues are working on and I'm helping out a bit with is, is called Frex. So Frex is, um, it's it's a library for, uh, I guess the headline would be automatically proving equivalences. Um, so take an algebraic theory, take an expression in that theory, say monoids, groups, whatever. Um, so express that as, um, or take the Idris type that, that expresses an equation, um, translate it into a form that Frex understands, um, do the proof, and then that proof is something that you can use in your program. So metaprogramming is essential to, to making that work effectively and usably. Um, and an awful lot of my effort over the last couple of years has been um, making, making Idris fast enough to compile the Frex library in a reasonable time to make it responsive. So our definition of responsive here is basically Jacob Nielsen's of um, it's under one second, ideally. Uh, if it's over 10 seconds, then it's a bug. Um, so we're generally doing well on the under one second there, I think. So yeah, my, my, so my primary thing is about performance. But but yeah, what can we do with metaprogramming? Uh, other things would be um, type providers. So this is where you uh, run a program to calculate what a type is going to be. So um, how do you know that you're interacting with a database correctly? A database has a schema. Maybe the compiler could run a program to query the, the database schema so that you know that the rest of your program is um, interacting properly with that database. Uh, or another thing we might use that for is, I have a student working on um, uh, verifying properties of state machines. So uh, you could take a graphical description of a state machine in dot format, so you draw it in graphviz. Um, you can then parse that for dot format, generate an Idris type that captures the meaning of the state machine, and then um, try to do proofs about you know, whether it's always possible to get into a state. So kind of mini version of a model checker in the type system. Again, that needs good metaprogramming for that to work effectively, because we'd really like to just to be able to draw the state machine, and that's your program. And the, through type providers and metaprogramming. Um, that you, you look at the picture and that is your API. Um, so 
it all comes down to metaprogramming. That everything interesting I have in mind seems to come down to good metaprogramming. That's that's, that's, that's really one priority. That's really interesting. It's uh, your your uh, the story about the picture being the API is uh, somewhat uh, one of my favorite uh, examples of why meta metaprogramming is very practical. Is mm. how how it's handled in Elixir. Uh, basically, they have essentially Lisp. Uh, there mm -hmm. with calls and calls and whatnot. And uh, what they do to generate Unicode, their Unicode module, is they, they take Unicode standard and then they have like code generator basically that takes mm -hmm. standard and, and, and builds uh, builds the actual program uh, in Elixir that handles uh, Unicode. And, and uh, but, but the thing that you, you, uh, you mentioned about uh, getting database hymns, uh, so do I understand correctly that you plan to have like kind of a side effect during the compilation? Right, yeah. Actually yeah. doing it and actually checking against it. Yeah. That's of course, the danger there is um, it would be unchecked. It would be completely possible to write a program that deletes its own source code because <laughs> it's because it's a side effect. So we could say, well, don't do that then. I mean, that's step step yeah. one is just to say don't do that then. But you know, who, who knows? You go to your package manager, you download a package that promises to be uh, this really helpful library, and then it just deletes your hard disk. Um, I mean, that's always a risk when you download a program off the internet. But I wonder if there's um, some nice type based way to prevent that sort of thing. And I, I think there probably is. So I'd, I'd like to think about that. Like, um, can can you can you encode capabilities in the type? So rather than the type being IO, the type would be, you know, some safe fragment of IO, or like a read-only thing. Um, I think that's possible. We'll need we'll need to think about it. I mean, we uh, David Christensen several years ago did type providers in Idris One and and basically figured out the idea. But we always I, I always had this nagging worry that um, somebody could write a program that deletes someone else's program. <laughs> so. Right. I'm sure nobody's going to do that, but you, it's going to be hard to do by accident, but you, you kind of also want to prevent people doing it deliberately. It reminds nice. me of my, my favorite ever GHC bug. It was um, about 2003 or so. There was, a, there was a bug in a development version of GHC where if there was a type error, it would delete the source file, which I guess fixes the problem. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, 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 one, that one crops up on the internet occasionally of, a, of an oh, example yeah, of when, where things can go wrong. It's, uh, in, in gaming, there is this uh, concept called permadeath. Yeah, when mm -hmm. the character dies, it, it's over. So mm -hmm. it was a version of permadeath for GHC. Yeah, that was right. quite <laughs> epic. So we have just one question, as far as I understand. Denise might uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so, um, so the question is uh, the following. So does the fact that Idris doesn't do uh, ASM generation really means it isn't needed? It seems like there are many really successful, uh, I guess the author means that there aren't, there aren't many really successful languages that don't do ASM gen, or at least LLVM. This is like kind of the first part of the question. And the second mm. part of the question, I'll ask you after you answer this. I'm not sure I understood what the question was. Um... Like there, there are so the um, I mean the mainstream successful languages out there. They they would typically, as far as I'm aware, you've you've got .NET, JVM, um, or LLVM as targets. That's that seems to be pretty much where we're at. Um, I don't think the reason for their success is really much to do with the platform they're running on. Um, but I do think you know if you if you've got if you've got the engineering time to to write a good runtime. I mean, I'm using Scheme because it's because it's great for what I want, 
but there's, it's also not great in some ways. Like there's there's things I want to be able to tell it but can't. So like maybe I want to be able to unbox integers, for example. So so the primitive types it has are really kind of awkward. Um, so in the long run, if if I had a big enough team of engineers, I would certainly want them to write uh, an LLVM-based runtime that took advantage of everything we knew about the source language. I just don't have that luxury. And I, I guess the, the, the languages that have become mainstream in a big way um, have just had the time to be able to do that. There is correlation, but perhaps there is no causality, right? Like perhaps uh, yeah. it's the other way around. I mean, obviously, I'm completely guessing here, so right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but that would be my guess. Also, there are some counterexamples, right? The, the like uh, Elixir that I mentioned several oh, times, right. yeah. which yeah. is extremely successful, and yes. it doesn't concern itself uh, at all about uh, with with uh, with uh, low level stuff. And well, well, the point there is the Erlang runtime, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. it used to be exclusively targeting Erlang. Now they have a very interesting, uh, yeah. Now they have kind of a version with hybrid runtime when they execute parts uh, on GPU, uh, oh, which is also, amazing. Yeah. Compiled to JV, uh, compiled to JavaScript languages these days are, uh, yep. I think, you know, like it or not, that is a big platform for. I mean, look at Electron. It's uh, it's not even not even on the web, but that's compiled to JavaScript. So, um, I mean, TypeScript is very popular. So, it's hard to say whether TypeScript is a compiled to JavaScript language or, or or merely a type checker on top of JavaScript. But it's a you know, it's it's another platform that successful languages are using. Okay, and so the the continuation of this question, or maybe another question, is uh, that. Um, are there not features of the GHC uh, runtime system that would be difficult to have in Shaz? I guess you mentioned it. Uh, and the, and the, uh, the person who asks this question mentions uh, software transactional memory. Well, how would we, I mean, how would we compile software transactional memory? I'm not really sure what that question is asking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, me neither. I mean, as, as far as, again, I, I don't know the exact implementation of STM and Haskell, but as far as I understand, it uses basically the, the primitives that we're having, like TVAR, MVAR, et cetera. And, uh... So, okay, I'll, I'll um, give a related thing, actually, that, that we have encountered. Uh, so one, it, it's, so remember earlier I said that if you want to be agnostic on your back end, you have to make a few compromises. So one thing that we do for foreign functions is, is uh, if you've got a foreign function, you give uh, a, basically a list of descriptors that say how you compile that function on a particular back end. And if the back end doesn't know, it doesn't understand any of the descriptors, basically it's a compile error, so you can't do that. Um, and the, the, the most difficult thing we've encountered so far with this has been concurrency. So not STM specifically, but um, every language has its own concurrency primitives. Um, even like, um, so the, the backends that ship with Idris 2 at the moment are Shea Scheme, Racket, so another flavor of Scheme. Well, it's a bit more, it's yeah, a bit more than the flavor of Scheme, um, and JavaScript. And even between Shea Scheme and Racket, there's enough differences that we have to think quite carefully about what the primitives even are. And they behave in different ways because Shea Scheme uh, uses pthread underneath, whereas Racket has its own runtime um, green thread implementation. So they don't necessarily behave the same way. So all we can really do is, is have this compromise of saying, yeah, when you write your concurrent code, you have to know what your target is and just accept that it won't be portable, which is disappointing. But uh, um, I think... 
from what I know of STM, I suspect we could implement it on a on a scheme back end if we had the right primitives. We we could implement the right primitives in scheme. But I don't know if we would be able to do that on a JavaScript backend. And I think we just have to accept that that's the way it is. Okay, as far as I understand, that's that's it in, in terms of questions. Um, thank you very much, Edwin. It's been truly an honor to thanks for to thanks for having me. It's always um, nice to come and ramble on the internet about things I'm interested in. So <laughs> happy right. to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope that uh, we'll speak again, maybe about some more narrow subject. And sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you.